You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by Business Insider. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash mission log, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log, expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. This episode is also sponsored by Collide. You got Slack? You got Macs? Get Collide, device security that fixes challenging problems by messaging your users on Slack. Try Collide today. Try it out at collide.com slash mission log. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 441, The Cloud. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we explore an episode of Star Trek, examining it for morals, meanings, and messages, and seeing if we can leave it at least as good as we found it. This week, The Cloud, the one where Chief O'Brien and Dr. Bashir find themselves in the middle of a Bajoran religious ceremony and have to talk their way out. Uh, wait, uh, hang on, checking my notes. Uh, mm-hmm. That sounds very familiar, but I, I'm going to go with uh, a different cloud. Uh, mm-hmm. This one in the Delta Quadrant. Uh, go with me here. New ship, new crew, different problem. Uh, any of that sound familiar? Um, agree to disagree. I mean, it sounds interesting. I'll, you know, we'll stick around for those notes if we have those two. Okay. I, well, I tell you what, I, you, Norman, tell people how to contact us, and then we'll see maybe if my trivia and recap jog your memory. Very good. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now let's get back to, well, his version of the cloud trivia with John Champion and trivia for his version of the cloud. All right. Thank you, Norman. Here we go with trivia for the cloud. We have a story by Brandon Braga. And in this case, we really mostly have Brandon to thank for the concept of Voyager encountering a really huge life form that looks like a nebula. And he wanted to give it a little fantastic voyage feel. So in this case, the story began with a hard sci-fi premise. And as we know, it takes a team of people. So enter Tom Zelossi and Michael Piller, who are credited here with the teleplay. Now, really, it was Michael who took on the brunt of the work since Brannon was working on another script already. He and Tom set about to accomplish two things. One was to reduce the number of special effects necessary in the initial draft in order to cut costs, and two, fill in those areas with meaningful character moments. Uh, There's the classic Piller filler, which really gets flexed here. Now, Tom's name is new to Star Trek. He worked on an earlier draft of the script, and he has one more Trek credit with a Voyager episode in season two. 
His career started back in the late 70s with sitcoms, dramas, and action shows. He also wrote, and Norman, tell me if you remember this, the, I feel, criminally underappreciated feature film, Three O'Clock High, in 1987. You, John, you, me, in the parking lot, three o'clock. <laughs> okay. Uh, another fun bit of trivia. I auditioned for that movie. Oh, I, I, remember, I remember you telling me about yes, that. Yes, yeah. yes. So I remember distinctly well. Uh, that was one of the rare auditions where I got the whole script and got to read it before going in. And I was auditioning for the nerdy friend, Vincent. And they told me they really liked my reading. I was just a little too young. But uh, I feel like Tom is a uh, screenwriter, really good. So kind of cool to have his words here in Voyager. Isn't the standard... The standard response for that, I can play older, or yes. you're too old. Well, I can play younger. Right? Yeah, right, right. I was 14. Just give me a beard. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be fine. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is directed by David Livingston. Great to see David's name so early on Voyager. This is the show where he will rack up the greatest number of Star Trek directing credits. But again, don't forget that he has been with Trek since the TNG pilot and still holds that record for the number of episodes directed. A couple of interesting original sets were built for this episode. A beach and Chez Sandrine, uh, both built on the stages at Paramount, but only the French bar slash pool hall was meant to be used again, which they do. Now, you know how they say never to work with kids or animals? Well, there's a lizard we'll meet. Uh, okay, well, Janeway meets the lizard. Uh, and David Livingston had a lot of trouble with it. <laughs> the thing wouldn't move, which makes for, well, very boring film if you have something that doesn't move on camera. They tried everything, but ultimately had to move on and hope that the second unit could get some footage, which is what we see here. Let's look at our crew spotlight. Well, we have Robert Duncan McNeil as Tom Paris. And we don't have to introduce our audience to Robert or Robbie, as he is often called. If you hear Mission Log episode uh, 211, The First Duty, you know that we hit some of his career highlights when he guest starred on that episode as the infamous Tom Lacarno. Nick, Robbie has Nick Lacarno, <laughs> sir. Nick Lacarno, sir. Oh, oh, Nick, Nick, Nick Lacarno. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can't, can't get that wrong mm -hmm. because he is definitely not Tom Paris, and Tom Paris is definitely not Nick Lacarno. <laughs> uh, Robbie has lived in Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and New York, where he studied acting at Juilliard and very quickly started getting TV work, in fact, as a recurring character on All My Children. Genre credits showed up early, though, with a spot on The Twilight Zone in 1985, and he was Kevin in the 1987 Masters of the Universe movie. May I jump in here for a second? Please, John? please. This is why you're here. That's why you're here, Norm. So there is a scene mm -hmm. with, with Robbie and with Anthony DeLongis, who plays Blade, who will eventually play Maje Kala from the Kazon. Uh, there you go. So... yeah. Shades of things to come, maybe? Connect, connecting all the dots. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is what I love. Now, uh, of course, Robbie is long associated with Star Trek. And like many other actors, he got his directing career started while working as an actor in the franchise. We'll roll around to that in the third season. But Robbie has successfully balanced work both in front of and behind the camera for the past couple of decades, even reviving the role of Tom Paris in 2021 for Star Trek Lower Decks. 
Let's meet our guest stars. Since this is an episode that takes place entirely on board Voyager, our guest cast is limited to the creations of the holodeck, the frequenters of Chez Sandrine. Daunt Gary, the pool shark, is played by Larry A. Hankin, who is recognizable from so much in his long career, going back to the mid-60s. He studied improv with the committee out of San Francisco and uh, my alma mater, The Second City. And you may remember him from shows like Friends or Lois and Clark or Seinfeld, in which he played, I love this, he played the actor playing Kramer in the episode where Seinfeld is made into a TV pilot. I know it's very meta, and he was great. Uh, Larry is still working, showing up in recent productions like HBO's Barry. And don't worry, we will see him again on Voyager. Oddly enough, you may not remember him because he didn't get a credit, uh, but for his role on the Next Generation episode, Cost of Living, in which he was the wind dancer, also known as that weird disembodied head with the tiled multicolored makeup floating in a bubble. That was That was Larry. Now, the gigolo is played by Luigi Amodeo. He is Italian and got his start in Italy with TV and short film appearances and soon made his way to Hollywood productions like the Valerie Bertinelli sitcom vehicle Cafe American. Since Voyager, he has had more TV guest appearances, a few feature films, and had a recurring gig on The Bold and the Beautiful. This, however, is his only Star Trek appearance. Andrea Dorman plays Ricky, and this is the first of two appearances for her. She's probably best known for recurring roles on The Drew Carey Show and Nash Bridges. And early in her career, she was a VJ on a Canadian music video channel. Finally, the proprietor herself, Sandrine, is played by Judy Geeson. And this was a bit of casting that really excited a good number of people on this episode. British-born... Judy made a number of appearances on TV in the early 60s, even landing a guest role on Patrick McGowan's pre-prisoner series, Secret Agent. But a few years later, she would become internationally famous for co-starring with Sidney Poitier in To Serve With Love. From there, Judy worked in a variety of British and American productions. You can find her briefly in Bond's 1969 outing on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And in a favorite of this podcast, Space 1999. Newer audiences might know that Judy had a long recurring role on the hit sitcom Mad About You, and you can even catch her on a few episodes of Gilmore Girls. Judy will be back for one more trek with us on Voyager. Welcome to the Delta Quadrant. There's a special this week on giant space amoeba nebula creatures. Prologue. While life on Voyager is settling in after a few weeks in the Delta Quadrant, Captain Janeway strolls the decks, assessing what kind of captain she is to be in their unique circumstance. A stop by the former private dining room, now kitchen, where a cup of coffee meets with disappointment. They're out. And Neelix has some substitute that is definitely not the real thing. Janeway is tempted to use a replicator ration, but she's reminded that she needs to make the same sacrifices as the rest of the crew. A call from the bridge is the escape Janeway needs from the indignity of something worse than Sanka. It's a nebula, 
that the crew have spotted, and it just happens to have a high concentration of Omicron particles, which means antimatter, which means firing up the replicators again, which means Janeway can get some coffee. Act 1. The captain and Chakotay quietly discuss the low crew morale, which leads to a discussion of the first officer's animal spirit guide. Hmm. Janeway takes an interest. Might be something she wants to look into as well. An initial scan of the nebula reveals nothing that would endanger the ship, so Voyager presses forward. There's an encounter with some dust that's interfering with impulse engines, but they can switch over to thrusters until dead stop at an energy barrier. But again, they can just push through with some force into a vast space filled with floating, unidentifiable, almost organic-looking objects. The energy field closes behind Voyager, and elsewhere in the ship, Neelix is venting to Cass about how this captain seems intent on getting her crew into danger, at which point Cass reminds him that humans, and this crew by extension, are natural explorers. So chill. But Neelix cannot chill. At least until he has a mid-nebula smooch with Cass, who totally gets the interest in exploring new spaces. Their kiss and everyone else's interest in the nebula is interrupted when those unidentified odd blobs start attaching themselves to the hull and draining the ship's energy reserves. They're not necessarily malicious, but Voyager needs to get out of there, and can't. Thrusters and phasers aren't strong enough to get them back out of the energy barrier. As a last resort, they'll use one of their precious few photon torpedoes to punch a hole and ride through, bumpily, but clear of the nebula. Act 2. At night, a sleeping Harry Kim is awakened by Tom Paris, who just has to show off his favorite holodeck program, a friendly, very friendly bar outside of Marseille. There's Sandrine, the owner, the gigolo, the pool shark, Gaunt Gary, the flowing wine, and Ricky, a lady who is just as enthusiastic to see Tom as is Sandrine. Harry doesn't like to drink, but he can be talked into not spoiling the party and plays around a pool with Tom. Meanwhile, in engineering, Bolana Torres has an inspiration and visits the doctor with a sample of the stuff that attached itself to the hull. She had some ideas, thought he'd want to see, and it is curious. The goo has a nucleogenic structure. The sample is organic. Up in the captain's ready room, Janeway is visited by Chakotay, who brings his medicine bundle, a blackbird's wing, a river stone, and a device called an akuna, which is a bit of technology that negates the use of psychoactive drugs. Janeway puts her hand on the akuna, and Chakotay talks her through a kind of guided meditation, at which point she finds her mind wandering to a beach, and on that beach, the first animal she sees is a small lizard, when she goes to it to ask a question, ah, doorbell. The vision is interrupted, and in walks Belana, who reports what she and the doctor found. The residue is organic, but it's not a life form. It's part of a much larger life form, the nebula itself. Act 3. Belana and the doctor surmise that they can help the creature heal with a directed nucleonic beam at the wound site, but they'll have to be careful protecting Voyager from any of its natural defenses at the same time. With the ship on yellow alert, 
An anxious and outraged Neelix storms into Captain Janeway's ready room to express his displeasure that they're heading back into a dangerous situation. She's unbending. It's a living creature, one that they hurt, and they're going back in to help. Dismissed. The mission begins. It's another bumpy ride, made even bumpier by some new defensive features that the being employs, damaging shields and knocking Voyager off course. Act 4. With systems failing, Janeway makes the call to shut off thrusters by venting deuterium, which is a big loss for Voyager. It works enough to stabilize the ship, but now they've been thrown deeper into the organism. The bridge crew does notice that there are naturally occurring currents, almost like a circulatory system, that they can ride back to the wound area. It's a good enough idea, and Janeway gives the order, just in time for Neelix to come bounding onto the bridge with some past hors d'oeuvres, naming himself the morale officer of the ship. In position, Voyager fires a nucleonic beam, but it's barely doing anything. Time for plan B. The doctor suggests using Voyager itself as an energy conduit, so Janeway cooks up a distraction, a probe that will draw off some of the being's energy while they position Voyager right in the middle and fire nucleonic beams from all sides. And what do you know? This time it works. The wound closes and Voyager slips out just in time. They'll have to take a detour, though, to find new sources of energy. With some downtime, Harry Kim invited Captain Janeway to join him, Tom, Bellana, and Chakotay at Shea Sandrine in the holodeck. At first, they're surprised to see her, but the captain is glad to be among her crew for some relaxation. Colorful holodeck characters and all. She even challenges, well, hustles may be the right word, Gaunt Gary to a game of pool. The end. A fantastic recap, John. You know what would go really good right now with uh, our next part of this show? What's that? A wonderful cup of whatever Neelix was pouring. <laughs> what was he pouring? It was, it was a little thick. It, it was a little, like, it wasn't quite like canard. It definitely was not coffee, but uh, I, mm. I'm going to say it was uh, yeah, motor oil. I mean, <laughs> by the way. Um, plus one for your reference of Sanka. Well done. Yeah, you know, I had to think of a disgusting coffee substitute, and I remember my grandparents drinking Sanka. Um, oh, so, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> a cup of instant terribleness yes, right there. right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, uh, right from the start, is it a little weird that Captain Janeway is recording a personal log while walking around the ship? Uh, so keep in mind, with, with all the cuts in there, it's very nice to get a little tour of Voyager mm-hmm. like that. Some of that scene is voiceover but the end of that scene is in real time when she strikes the last sentence um and by the way yeah. do, do people around her hear her altering her personal log because just a shout out to everybody in starfleet bear in mind your captains may delete things in their personal logs could happen it's not like it's happened before yeah. i'm just yeah saying. but right. it's just warning it could happen <laughs> Well, captains have that prerogative, I guess. You know, I I like the morning stroll thing. I like that um, the characters, you know, they got the note to snap to, like when the captain arrives, you know, their reputations precede themselves even before they walk through those, you know, hangar bay doors or in Bellana's case before she walks into engineering. Yeah, it's I think it, it adds a lot of foreshadowing to the captain and trying to build that relationship, try to close the distance in the gap. Yeah. 
you know, between her and her crew. Very nice moment. De- definitely uh, a topic that we will discuss today. Um, another topic, well, near and dear to you and me. <laughs> I love her telling you. After being offered that terrible other drink she goes i don't want something even better i want coffee and i i feel you i, I so yeah. i so get it janeway i so get it yeah i like that they have that particular detail like so established with her character early mm-hmm. on it's just one of those things like picard's earl yep. gray yeah it's just, just part of her character yeah. now which is just, nice. just have a thing have a, a a hook that you can use yep and it's so powerful of a drug of choice that she's even considering using precious energy in order to get her replicator which is i think that's nice that neelix is like captain uh lead by example because you're the captain right it's a good moment and i do like how neelix isn't a part of the crew I mean, look, he does have this weird, awkward comment on how she looks. Uh, okay, fine. He, he's he's the square peg in the round hole, you know. But I I really do like how he can call out things like not using replicator ration. Um, oh, and, and by the way, I really like the kitchen set here as well. I like her going around and looking in that pot with the steaming. It kind of looked like crab claws in there. I don't know, but it, it looked really cool. Yeah, it looked. Um, it almost looked like it was from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Oh, New Orleans. Yeah. Sorry, right. oh, excuse ooh, me. Yeah, yeah, pardon pardon me. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's from New Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, or New Orleans. Yeah. There's coffee in that nebula. Oh. Yeah, that's the line. That's the right? line. Ne- that's the never line. get old. Never get old. Mm-mm. I thought it was an interesting observation when uh, Chakotay and Janeway sat down on the bridge saying that Voyager's mission doesn't require having a counselor on board, which is why they didn't have a counselor. Yeah, you know, that that is an interesting point to have. And um, I, I just having an email correspondence with one of our listeners not long ago saying, you know, of all the people who were on Voyager who then, well, some of them got killed by the time they got over to the Delta Quadrant, you're talking about a pretty sparsely populated ship. So um, one of those luxuries is not having a counselor. Yeah. Yeah. And I liked how Chakotay associated the spirit animal guide when he was talking to Janeway about it with Carl Jung's imagination technique. So, or ways to Mm -hmm. self-counsel when, when required. Uh, But here's a weird thing though. So, Janeway and Chakotay are having this kind of sensitive discussion about Janeway being able to find ways to uh, help those in need on the ship, maybe herself. Mm -hmm. And then they're talking about spirit guides. Mm -hmm. Do you think that anyone in earshot of their conversation would be concerned? You know, let's come back to that because I I have a note about the spirit guide idea here. And and I, I think I've got another way to look at it. Think out another way to phrase it. Because, yes, I do. Like, if I'm sitting there at the helm and I'm hearing this going, like, ooh, well, we could mm-hmm. just ask the spirit guides. I, I'm, I, I'm checking out. I'm like, no, guys, we got a starship. <laughs> we, we, right. We've got technology here. Let's use it. This makes me a little uncomfortable. But, but I have an idea, and, and I want to come back to it, and we'll, uh, we'll discuss further. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about that little banter between Tuvok and Kim about Kim's outburst. Yeah. Really nicely done. Totally in character. And I love, I don't think we've ever seen it before, this novel use of the communicator badge. It's like the modern equivalent of texting someone while you're in the same meeting together, which uh, Mm -hmm. I have totally done on more than one occasion. And it's usually to try to make someone laugh. So I get it. I get it. Yep. 
Okay, so I found this scene to be completely out of place. Oh, really? Okay. And he, okay. And here's why. Because I understand that Tuvok may have an issue with the way that Harry is enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. He's Vulcan. He doesn't see the, the reason behind it. It's just that the way he describes it, saying that junior officers on the bridge, they don't need that kind of response from you. Who else is more junior of an officer than him on the bridge? Right. right. Like, seriously, like, look around. There is no one yeah. on the bridge more junior of an officer than uh, he is. That's very true. So yeah. who was Tuvok? <laughs> what was he talking about? Really? Um, but I also like that Harry stood up for himself and said kind of the exact same thing back to Tuvok. When Tuvok said, I don't have an explanation for what I'm saying. I love that. Yeah, yeah. His right? line, I am unable to offer an identification, Captain. I, so it's all about the style, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Not, not but, it, but today, though, if they like, if they did it in Discovery, you would be seeing IMs. Yeah, yes. You know, on their consoles. Yes, yes. You know, uh, smiley face or, or sad face. Exactly. Kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, I do. I really like the contrast of Kess and Neelix's temperaments and, and how she grounds mm-hmm. him a bit. It was a nice scene, although a little weird. You know, I, I took some objection to Kess having extraordinary powers, as indicated in Time and Again. So why couldn't she tell that the nebula was a great big living being? That seems like a pretty obvious thing. That's a good point. Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't really have yeah, an explanation I, for that. You know, we could speculate. I, it's that. one of those things um, that's going to forget or rediscover from week to week. So we'll see how it goes. I, yeah, I, I think that we're like in the growing stages of of writing in the writing room and stuff like that. There are going to be some details like Vulcanians. Yep. You know, that's a yep. thing. Yep. You know, or James Roy Kirk, mm-hmm. uh, right. R. Kirk. Yep. Uh, that are just they they don't withstand the test of time, but in some people's minds they yep. do. Uh, these I love it when Kes says these people are natural born explorers. <laughs> Neil says these people are natural born <laughs> idiots. I like that. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Later. Well, that, that's the thing. When you have a character yeah. like Neelix, you can allow him to feel the contrasting opinion because you don't mm-hmm. want your bridge crew to say that. Of course they wouldn't. Um, right. So let somebody be there to have that voice. Um, mm-hmm. Let's also point out here a technical detail. Voyager has 38 photon torpedoes. And Are we counting? Yeah, yeah. No way to replace <laughs> okay. them. So let's just park that there. Only 38. That's it. So, well, I mean, if one of those torpedoes happens to fall, 30, 37, 37 that, that's what they got now. They got the 37 now right. at the end of this episode. So, yeah, oh, just keep that in mind, folks. Okay. Yeah. Short song. Mm-hmm. Short song. Uh, try, try reversing the shield polarity. So, is this like the new version of tri auxiliary power? <laughs> this is a weird thing, like with, with Star Trek. You know, like, um, right. remember in Star Trek 2 when the Enterprise is getting trashed by the Reliant and Kirk says, try auxiliary power, and Scotty's like, I, I, yeah. He says it in a way where he's like, don't you think I would have done that yeah, by no now? No, duh, Captain. Yeah. But are officers not allowed to do that without the captain's request or recommendation? I would think it would just be an automated thing. Too. You would yeah. think, yeah. right? So, but uh, then we have dialogue like this, right? right? <laughs> I'm just it was weird. Uh, speaking of tech, it, it is very interesting in an episode like this to see what effects really hold up, particularly in design elements like that Elcar's panel where Bellana is <laughs> firing up the thrusters, and that is a live video effect on set, and there's a lot of detail, but it does not hold up. Um, it, it definitely does not work. But this is an interesting transition period where it's more economical. It's easier for uh, the crew to actually build some live onset animations as opposed to something that gets screened in later or just a static effect. 
So kudos for putting that on set. But then in a situation like this, it doesn't hold up really well. I think that uh, Janeway has a beef with or, or a beef to take up with Captain Pike because Captain Pike's his whole slogan is punch it. Oh, right? yeah. That's his yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. So but it's really Janeway who's punching it. right? Yeah. She's yeah. punched it like three times so far this series oh, yeah. and she's punching through again. <laughs> so it's Jane it's Catherine punch it Janeway in my opinion. I love it. The Janeway maneuver right. is to punch it. Exactly. Like, to punch but, it. Yeah. OK. Uh, Tom Paris. Look, we called you out for being a little too <laughs> overeager with the ladies, so so cool your jets, okay? And now you literally yeah. break into your friend's room to wake him up to go play on the holodeck with you. It's a good thing Harry Kim doesn't sleep with a phaser under his pillow, you know? Right. We didn't think of- well, with a mask, he wouldn't be able to find it. Yeah, right. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Just, just feel it around. <laughs> yeah, like, where's that phaser? Oh, oh, God. Wait, wait, whoever broke into my room, hang on, wait, wait. Uh, but look, I will say this for Tom Paris. Chez Sandrine, Marseille, I get it. I 100% get this. And I would have that in my holodeck catalog. Uh, right right next to uh, Vic Fontaine's club. No question. See, I like Chez Sandrine. Uh-huh. It's just that the way it was kind of introduced was more like cheese, Ooh. Sandrine. Ooh. Ooh. Right, just okay. yeah. for me, yeah, for me, because... Yeah. I like that it's kind of like um, having your own personal, you know, uh, escape uh, your own, mm-hmm. you know, obviously a program where, you, you know, you can go and relax and be yourself. And obviously the people or the programs in there address you as such. Yeah. It's just that it's a little oversexed, I, even for I, Paris. I really? Even for Paris? <laughs> yeah, even for Paris. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. Um but here's an interesting thing. When you bring the element of, say, pool uh, into – because it's a physical element, um, playing pool or playing billiards, watch the actors when they actually play. Robbie breaks very well in this scene. Yeah. His, his ball spread yeah. – Oh, pardon okay. me. This, I know this mm-hmm. is a the family okay. show. It's very, it is very indicative of someone who knows how to break a table. Oh, that's cool. Good. Good, yeah. good. More on that right, Yeah, and, and I will uh, give you a, a little piece of uh, trivia here, a little detail. He calls for the uh, Saint-Emilion, which is a town and a wine region uh, known for mm-hmm. Bordeaux. And some of the top bottles, like uh, you can look up a Chateau Cheval Blanc, will set you back about 800 bucks. So, wow. Mm-hmm. Yep. How much is that in hologram? I don't know. <laughs> so, so many, so many. Because it's only holographic wine, Harry. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which is a nice touch. Yeah. Uh, nothing says authentic Paris on Earth experience like a well-staged pickpocket. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad that that hasn't changed. Yeah. I wonder if they'll start doing that at Disney Epcot. They, <laughs> they should. Come, yeah, come for the ride. Save for the pickpocketing. Um, <laughs> I, I do like the reference here. You know, a hologram that programs itself will, will yes, make sense to me. And I, I love that now we have another crew member in addition to Cass who is challenging the doctor's boundaries a bit and his sense of self. So I thought that was very cool. Check mark for sentient being once again mm-hmm. a hologram that programs itself. Yeah. I really like the the interaction that the doctor has with like the the crew members. It it almost adds more to them as they do to him. You know when they have these the the banter is back and forth. And this one though, it's a different energy with Torres, but. We also get the name drop of Zimmerman now. Yeah. Yes. Which is great. Yes. Yes. So we, we you know, with uh, applied to a person. Yeah. That's very cool. I love really, really well-designed props, which is why I have to bring this okay. up. Chakotay's medicine bundle, 
looks like it was literally designed from like stuff that you would buy at Party City. <laughs> I'm sorry, right? No, I'm not sorry. No, I'm bringing this be up sorry. because I have a problem with it. Yeah. So I understand what it means. The idea of it, I think it's yeah. great. I think that it's great that they have technology that replaces peyote. I think that's yep. very smart. You know, very cool. That replaces mm-hmm. the, the the psychotropic mm-hmm. drug. But you have to give it a lot more tangibility, realism, yeah. you know, aside from the faux fur, the faux leather, the faux everything, yeah. right? Give it, it's supposed to be native to his tribe and to his history. Yeah. Make it look yeah. real. Yeah, that, make it look used. Make it look like it's an antique of some kind. Well, we're, we're going to talk about that, too, in, in a moment in the next segment. Uh, the lizard totem, apparently, representing uh, strength and survival, among many other traits, but uh, perfectly applies to Janeway in their situation. So I thought that was a cool choice. And, of course, Bolana would try and kill her spirit because that's what Bolana would do, right? Yes. Yeah. I love that idea. All right. A little bit of comedic gold. The doctor waving his hands on the view screen after being muted. Just so much fun. That, that's the scene that I always look forward to in the rewatch. I'm going to say this probably, I'm going to blanket statement this because mm-hmm. I don't know how this is going to go in the future, but what scene that Robert Picardo is in isn't perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of Seriously. a challenge with the show, right? Yeah. Yeah, every single scene that he's in, whether he's foreground, background, or muted, he's still perfect. Yeah, He still steals the scene. Yeah, truly. See, we learned a new term this week that dismissed is a Starfleet expression that means get out. <laughs> very, very helpful. Love her delivery there. Love yeah. that. I, I like that Neelix took it upon himself to, uh, to kind of like flip his script and become the morale officer and not be such a... Um, you know, not a force of negativity on the sure. ship. Yeah, Debbie Downer, if yeah. you will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. you know, that kind right. of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. And um, and speaking of raising morale, how nice to see Janeway among her crew in the holodeck just for fun. I, again, I, I think that'll be a topic that we come back to for sure. Yeah, I thought it was smart that uh, that Harry kind of uh, followed up with his conversation with Tom earlier, inviting the captain like to their uh, retreat. I like that in the end, the, the captain ends with, instead of a personal log, a spiritual log, if you mm. will, because she's talking about, she references a Kuchimoya that, uh, that Chakotay brought up like earlier on in the middle of the episode, talking about the spirit guide. But here's the thing. Mm-hmm. The most important thing that you really need to pay attention to is how Robert Beltran cues his stick oh, okay. in that scene. That man knows how to play. He bridges his cue like a player. Uh-huh. He puts English left draw on the ball to line up his next shot off camera. And then he walks down the rail, picks up the chalk and chalks his stick up like somebody would knowing how to play the game. Well, you can't fake that for the camera. That's real. That is like a real. Play. Can't fake that. And the other thing you can't fake is that final shot. That is Kate taking that shot with the eight ball. And uh, she does it marvelously well. Disclaimer, the giant space amoeba nebula creatures do not, I repeat, do not contain coffee. Thank you for your understanding. We'll get right back to the cloud, but first a word from this week's sponsors. You know, John, here's something that I've been thinking about recently. Mm -hmm. You don't want to walk around out there without any kind of protection whatsoever. Uh, oh, oh, and that could apply to a number of things. In, in yeah. this case in particular, you don't want to go outside or online without protection, like ExpressVPN. It's like 
it's like using your smartphone without a protective case if you're not using ExpressVPN. Ooh, ooh, very true and also a very personal choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like, okay, nine times out of ten, sure, you know, you might want to risk it. But there's that one time where you, you look at the, at the shattered remains of your phone and you're like, Oh, I really wish I had protection. Too real. Too real. I know what that feels like. Okay, well, look, think of it this way. Every time that you connect to an unencrypted network, I mean, wherever you may be, it could be a, a cafe or a hotel, uh, an airport, a restaurant, a theme park, if you're nuts like me, your online data is not secured. Any hacker on the same network can gain access and steal your personal data. That personal data could be anything from passwords to financial details, stuff that you don't want out there to the world. And it doesn't take a lot of technical know-how to do it. I mean, a kid with some cheap hardware could do it. You know, a 12-year-old could do this. And get this, that 12-year-old hacker could get up to a 1000 bucks per person by selling that personal information on the dark web. Okay, so here's how it works, folks. So think of your phone without ExpressVPN. Think of the case, the protective case as ExpressVPN. Mm -hmm. You slap it on. Mm -hmm. That's the tunnel. That's the tunnel that ExpressVPN creates. It creates this tunnel that's secure. It's encrypted between your device and the internet, so hackers can't steal your sensitive data, i.e. your stuff doesn't get shattered. It's super secure. Again, it like John said, it takes a hacker with a supercomputer like a billion years to get through this protection. It's a very long time, more time than I have. And when you slap on that case on your phone, that's as easy, just as easy as pushing that button, that ExpressVPN button, to get yourself protected. And it works on all your devices like protection does, like your phones, your laptops, tablets, all the stuff that you have. You want to put that protection on all your stuff. Now, this is why we love to use ExpressVPN. First and foremost, it is secure. And second, most importantly, it is easy to use. You hit that one button on any device where you've got ExpressVPN installed, and it's transparent. You don't even know it's running in the background, but it's doing its job protecting your data. So you can secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash mission log, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash mission log. So here's something to consider, John. Mm -hmm. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. You know what? We use Slack, and we use Macs, and this is exactly the kind of thing you want to do. You want to take some of that workload off your IT and just allow your users to go like, oh, look, there's a Slack message telling me what Mm -hmm. I could or should do to protect my devices. So having that all-encompassed, all-in-one, Collide really is the perfect solution for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. No, man, don't lock down my device, okay? Um, So instead of frustrating your employees, let's try a different approach here. Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Visit collide.com slash mission log to sign up today. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log. You put in your email address when you're prompted and you will get a free Collide gift bundle after trial activation. Now at Collide, they know that end users are IT admins' most significant untapped resources and the key to solving the most challenging to fix security issues, including things like, well, here we go. Let's just uh, do a quick list here. 
instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys. Duh. Finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end users how to store them securely. Yes. And convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. Again, I say, duh. Yeah, and these are just some of the many use cases not solved by locking down devices. So you can try Collide with all of its features on an unlimited number of devices for free for 14 days. No credit card required. Try it out at collide.com slash mission log. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log. All right. How about a little discussion on uh, workplace friendships? <laughs> I mean, it, it, here's here's what's so interesting about this episode is that, uh, yeah, there's the thing going on with the nebula, of course. But we see uh, hanging out on the holodeck. We see Tom Paris mm-hmm. breaking into Harry Kim's room to rouse his friend out of bed and say, no. Because prison skills, right? Because prison yeah. skills. Yeah, I guess that'll come in handy sometimes. And uh, But you also see Janeway grappling with this idea of saying, we're in this totally unique situation. I understand my role, but I also have to figure out how that role is maybe different because of the situation or just being uh, on the ship that I'm on with the crew that I have. Do I need to alter a little bit who I am to them? And I really love this. I I really love, uh, you know, it's this ongoing conversation that you would have in any workplace really about etiquette and and using that chain of command and fraternizing and what the rules are it's good stuff and it's something mm-hmm. that we rarely get on star trek which is interesting to me because i'm thinking back how you know really one of the hallmarks of the original series was the friendship of our main three and the camaraderie with the rest of the crew like that that was absolutely necessary then you fast forward to tng and there is this very early clear distinction being made with picard as this gruff business only captain and it took seven seasons for him to be part of the gang that was playing poker yeah. You know, it, 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 and it's not to say that that cast, that crew didn't have friendship and camaraderie, but it wasn't explored early off the way it was here. You know, you look at a show like, well, okay, The Naked Now, early on, you get this hint, you get this glimmer, uh, Picard and Beverly are going to flirt a little bit, but no, it's only <laughs> but it's yeah. only because they're under the influence and it'll never be spoken of again. But this, I feel like, is one of the fundamental places where Voyager gets to reset itself and, and reset what that dynamic looks like in Star Trek. So, so let's talk about it a little bit. Does Janeway mm-hmm. lose anything by trying to be more personal with her crew? And, and for that matter, does any captain lose anything as long as they're also professional and trustworthy? What, what do you think? Is she giving up something or is there only gain to be made? Well, I mean, I'd like to answer your question with another question because I think this also falls in line with this greater uh, understanding of the captains in Star Mm -hmm. Trek. Is the Starfleet captaincy a form of isolationism? Mm. Regardless Mm. of how the individual in question, in this case, Janeway, feels about it, because there uh, there is this attitude from the crew 
and it was perfectly discussed with with Tom and Harry when they saw the captain come in for breakfast. And mm-hmm. I, I would like to read this from the script because I think this is very important. Paris says, "Captains don't want courtesy; <laughs> they want respect. That's why they don't get chummy with the lower ranks." And Harry said, well, who else is she supposed to get chummy with out here? Out here. This is a completely different scenario (laughs) now. And then Tom said, if she wants to sit with us, she'll ask us to join her. That's the way it's done. Harry says, I think you're working from an old rule book, Paris. And I think that that's true. I think that Tom is coming from the Admiral Dad point of view, and Harry is coming from the let's all go along to get along as one big family point of view. And I think these are really two interesting concepts that are at play with how does Captain Janeway maintain the respect and the integrity of her position, but at the same time, though, not creating this division between her position and how she is trying to create a more of a... Uh, a basis of camaraderie with the crew. Well, and see, that's why I wonder, like, we can very easily game out what the downsides are. And and if you have a commanding officer who is too chummy, too friendly, do you then create a situation where there is a lack of respect? Or is it harder for that commanding officer to send his or her crew on dangerous missions where somebody might die. Are you unable to make those difficult uh, decisions if you're in that situation? At the same time, if you're a captain with a good crew and you put your trust in that crew, when those dangerous situations come up, you know you can rely on them to do their jobs. You know you can rely on them to possibly even volunteer for those dangerous situations. So... I think it's easy to point out, you know, the upsides and the downsides either way. And maybe this is a special situation. They they don't know if they're going to get home or if they do, they don't know if it's going to take dozens of years to do so. So at this point, you have to come together like a family as well as a crew, because let's face it, these people can't they can't even talk to their own families. Their own families might presume that they're dead and never coming back. The other dynamic in play here also is that I think that Captain Janeway is assuming her Starfleet officers may find that attractive, the the Mm. breaking down of this barrier that they have between them and the captain. What about the Maquis? Do they Mm. even care? Or is this something that, yeah, we don't care if you're captain or not. We want somebody who we can trust. Yeah. Well, we don't want somebody who's like set themselves apart because their rank and privilege says so under Starfleet regulations. And that is something that actually could work in Janeway's favor is that if you have a personal understanding, a personal relationship with everyone, whether they are Starfleet or Maquis, then it's another way to engender trust among the crew. So I, I get it. This is just a very different approach than what we had. Of course, on DS9, we had a different approach, too, because you had so many people from different uh, backgrounds and different organizations that that Cisco's role really kind of became something different. It wasn't a starship captain with a Starfleet crew. And yes, on Voyager, not 100% of them are Starfleet, but most of them are. That, that my key crew is still pretty small, but their situation is different. I just still wonder, like, even if the situation weren't different, what are those barriers that a captain has to set? And even if the captain feels like those barriers have to be in place, is that really productive? Is it 
causing a bigger problem by trying to solve another problem. The most difficult thing I ever had to do as a manager of a staff was to juggle that the the delicacy of those boundaries because become too friendly, go out to lunch, go to parties, mm-hmm. go to social events. Uh, breaking down the barriers of of certain nuances that keep things status quo in the workplace is very very tricky. Sure, because yeah. get too personal, you start becoming invited as godparents or become <laughs> invited as uh, let's go out socially to dinner or have drinks. Yeah, you get you are seen in a completely different and particular light. So when things happen where you need to become more authoritative with those same people new dynamics emerge I, it, and not necessarily yeah, comfortable ones. Yeah. yeah favoritism is real. I, I, I get it. And, and that could definitely have uh, a tarnishing effect on, uh, on that relationship. I totally get that at the same time, you know, if you've got a leader who is honest and trustworthy and makes good decisions, then maybe some of that favoritism argument can squelch itself. Maybe, you know, but you know, uh, really depends on the situation sometimes. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate the episode for going there, for just letting her have that question in her mind. And then we see some of those barriers start to break down. Now, let's talk about something that uh, that I, I hinted at earlier, and that, that's about the, the humor element here, the comedy, uh, comic relief as it's played. And you and I both have said, oh, the, the EMH, Bob Picardo is incredible. And he just owns mm-hmm. every scene that he's in. But because of the nature of that character, it's like you can hand him these snarky comments. You can let him not be part of that Starfleet mold and he can get away with it. You know, yeah. and, and I'll come back to this in the wrap up because it, it does affect my view of the episode overall. But but let me just state that Star Trek doesn't always do comedy well. Sometimes it does. It has to be natural. And we've pointed out on Mission Log when it does get the humor right. But mm-hmm. it's not necessarily Star Trek's strong suit. You're golden when you got an actor-character matchup like Robert Picardo as the holographic doctor. No question about it. But remember last week how I said that some fans were too hard on Neelix? Well, that was when he lay there dying in an iron lung. This week, I feel like it's allowable to let him have some scenes of awkward enthusiasm and misplaced eagerness, especially mm-hmm. when the captain shuts him down. Valuable, good stuff. Sure. What's not okay, <laughs> though, is when I feel like he is designed to be the joke. The chef costume, the canapé is on the bridge. And I look, mm-hmm. just personally, in theory, I don't have a problem with canapés on the bridge, but in practice here, it did not work. Let me take you back. Let me take you way, way back to something that I rarely reference on Mission Log, and that is classic Doctor Who. Now, Mm -hmm. with each regeneration, we got a distinct look that was representative of the persona, and it was also in-universe that that it worked because we knew that the Doctor was this eccentric alien just pulling together the weird bits and pieces from his collection. Fast forward a bit, though, you get to the fifth and the sixth Doctors, and that's where you get a celery stalk on the lapel or much, much worse, the giant question mark pins on uh, (laughs) on Colin Baker. You know the ones, right? Right, So, And my problem with that is that these were indications of the Doctor knowing who he is as a character 
rather than just being the guy in the reality of the show. And, and it's it's a kind of self-awareness. It's a wink and a nudge to the audience. It doesn't always fail, but it definitely does not always work. And I feel like that's what I'm getting from Neelix here. And I need him to go back to having that darker, tragic edge. Now, I did mention before how much I liked that scene with him and Cass. I thought that was a, a nice balance, but here we are five episodes in and my my frustration with neelix is there it's it's hurting my appreciation of the depth we got out of him before i well see that's like um that's an interesting point because i don't really feel that way about neelix in this situation at all as a matter of fact Mm. i I think that there still is a, a little bit of darkness within him by the way that he reacts to janeway going back into the nebula he's angry sure and rightfully so because he's not starfleet I understand what you're saying about and, and, and the don't get me wrong. I want packaged. him to call it out I, because yeah. y- you have this golden opportunity with a character like the Doctor to speak his mind, and then you also have an opportunity with Neelix to speak his mind, and they're not in rank. They're not in the chain of command. Yeah, I think it's just because the way that uh, they designed Neelix. Neelix is he's very extreme in his look. That's mm-hmm. given, and uh, we've seen other characters in that same extremist, like say Quark in Deep Space Nine. You know, he's pretty much like rated Quark's wardrobe yeah. uh, for <laughs> right. Voyager, and it's a little too similar. Yeah. And Quark was always played off for comedy. Yeah. So when you see someone designed in similar fashion, I think that we're bringing a lot of those, um, a lot of those those same feelings about Quark as kind of like the comedy relief with you know hints of of golden opportunities for performances there Uh, but you know like um i I understand what you're saying about doctor who and i got to say that the celery thing in case of adrazani there was a purpose for the celery. okay so not so not so much the question marks on colin baker or the question marks everywhere on sylvester mccloy including his cane yeah um yeah sure there's a certain sense of um marketing self-awareness that was going on you know with those characters but i don't think in this case that's where I personally see Neelix the way that he looks. I yeah. think that because he looks so extreme in such a certain way, it is very visually jarring to the buttoned upness and the sterility that comes from Starfleet. Well, you know, it's like when we talked about Worf in DS9. Worf is the spice that you need to be able to drop that perfect one-liner, to be able to have that outsider opinion, and that's cool. But then when you overplay it and you get too much Worf and you you realize just they didn't know where to write him, where he was going, too much is too much. And right. and that that's where I don't want to land with Neelix. But unfortunately, this episode left a worse taste in my mouth, even though he has some great scenes. So well, I think I think the scene with he and Kess, I think that that was very Star Trek, in in my opinion. Oh, it was, sure. I think it's probably yeah. one of the better verbalizations, realizations of the overall Star Trek philosophy. And if you really take a look at their conversation, it's basically Kirk's "Tomorrow is Yesterday's Risk is Our Business" conversation. That speech. There you go. Yeah, because I really love when Kess says these people are natural born explorers, Neelix. And then on the flip side, on the kind of like the cynical side, he says these people are natural born idiots, <laughs> if you ask me. Yeah. And she defends the captain's position. And then yeah. Neelix doubles down and says, if you care about your crew the way that Ness says, uh, Kess says that uh, Janeway cares about her crew, he says, you don't introduce them to the specter of death at every opportunity, but it's not death. It's exploration, you know, and that goes back to Kirk saying that, you know, if we were afraid, if man were supposed to fly, he wouldn't fly. Yeah. You know, he wouldn't have wings, but he could fly. Yeah. You know, because he had to. Right. Right. So, 
you have this this wonderful contrast between these two characters, neither of them being Starfleet, neither of them being traditional. And they're talking about these two extreme aspects of the the exploration of space and the the fear of the unknown. Those are in complete contrast and, and in perfect balance in in this situation between what Star Trek stands for to boldly go out there and to mm-hmm. seek out versus the the uh, the internal fear of say what everyone's probably secretly harboring in Voyager and like are we ever going to make it home? What are we doing out here? Right. And I like that Neelix doesn't have that filter because he hasn't been trained to suppress that emotion. Sure, sure. Which is why he barges into Jane was like, "What are you doing? How dare you?" And she's like, well, I hear you. I understand you. I know how to suppress that emotion. So dismissed. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do love that. I love her putting him in his place in a uh, in a respectfully firm way. That was, mm-hmm. yeah, that was great. All right. You brought it up before, uh, the animal guide, the animal spirit guide. And, and how would you feel on the bridge if you're hearing this discussion between your captain and first officer? So I, we need to get something clear here right away uh, because this will be something that comes up in Mission Log for the foreseeable future as we talk about Voyager. And I'm glad you're bringing this up and not me. Okay, okay. All right, so <laughs> look um, – uh, well, and I feel like I can speak for both of us to say that we are in no position whatsoever to speak to what is correct or not here when it comes to mm-hmm. Chakotay and his spirituality. Um, now, I do have my own personal feelings about how much stock uh, we may put into anything labeled as spiritual or having a spiritual value. We'll get into that in just a second. But we absolutely uh, need to point out here that the production, that the Star Trek Voyager had an expert in Native American myth and history as a resource. Well, they thought so. His name was Jamake Highwater, but that was a lie. He was really Jackie Marks by birth, and even though he had no Native American background or expertise whatsoever, he fooled enough people into making a career out of it, even writing a few books along the way. Now, he was exposed in the early 80s, and maybe because it was pre-internet, the production still had him on call for topics like this. So that leaves us in an interesting position on our podcast. It would be very difficult for us to point out what's legit or what's not when it comes to Chakotay's background. So we'll just have to go with what's on screen and consider that it is, quote unquote, true for the character. Now, I mentioned in our Discord, if you're there, if you're one of our Patreon supporters, that the whole debacle would be perfect for a documentary. So... Somebody get on that. <laughs> somebody somebody go work on that for us, okay? But the approach that I want to take here is asking about the utility of an animal spirit guide. And, and, and what do you, what do we collectively think about that? Now, I'll start out by saying that we just came off a show, DS9, that spent a lot of time in the religious, spiritual realm with some of its characters, for better or for worse. Sometimes I would say much worse. And here we're just given this sort of matter-of-a-fact thing about Chakotay's life. It's not central to the plot, nor is the show really making a statement about it. But to your point, Norm, is this something that you can just sort of hand to people you just sort of we're going to have a discussion on the bridge here about our tactics and about how we're going to take on this mystery this mission and potentially how we get home so um we're going to ask the animal spirit guide 
Now, mm-hmm. I'm going to take a slightly different angle on this. And as I just said, I, I don't have strong spiritual beliefs of, of any sort um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but I, I had a very interesting experience uh, one year. I was at a um, I was at a festival, and Mark Edward, who uh, wrote a book called Psychic Blues, you can look that up. He was a psychic to the stars, and he had very high profile clients like Bob and Dolores Hope, and uh, made his living doing this. But he also realized that part of what he was doing was a lie. You know, he he would people would uh, trust him that he had these psychic spiritual insights. And, of course, he's getting paid for the privilege. When I saw him at a festival, what he did is this. He would pose a question and, and you would concentrate. You would think about that. And then he would do a psychic reading and say, you know, it could be anything. It could be, um, you know, palm reading, could be tarot cards, whatever. And, and he would guide you on this process of thinking about this. And then he would wrap up the whole thing by saying, okay, all of that stuff that just perfectly tied in to what you were thinking, what you're concentrating on, that's because you were doing the work. What I'm doing is a show. And what you're doing is you're taking all these disparate clues and elements and you are fitting the narrative. There's nothing psychic or spiritual or, or supernatural about it at all good job (laughs) you know so he put the power back in that person's hands and to give this sort of the most reasonable benefit of the doubt here i can i can accept it that way i can look at it this way and say you know what there may not be an actual spiritual element to what they're looking at here jamie may or may not believe that that's fine but regardless it is a tool it's a technique for her concentration on mm-hmm. a problem, on a topic. So I'll accept it that way. <laughs> but I'm also here to tell you that unless I had that conversation with Captain Janeway, if I'm sitting in front of her punching uh, numbers into the nav computer, I'm going to question whether or not that is the best way to arrive at, uh, at my next direction. Well, see, that, that's why I thought it would have been better if she said, I would like to have this conversation in my ready room mm-hmm. or, you know, in my private dining room. All that aside, I like how you framed it as a, a tool for her to focus uh, as, say, a tool of meditation mm-hmm. or a tool of being able to find direction or to quiet her mind. Uh, like, like Chakotay said, you know, like the Jungian version of the self-imagining tool so that people can find... Uh, find a pathway through kind of like the noise of the day. Mm-hmm. And what I like about this is it's no re- it's no it's really no different than say what Tom did to Harry when he dragged Harry out of bed <laughs> and brought him to his place of meditation. Yes, yes. Okay. Right? So Shay yeah. Shay uh, Sandrine is where Tom is at his happiest, probably his most productive, probably his just like um probably his 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 best version of himself can be in that space that's what a meditative space allows you to do whether it's a bar whether it's church whether it's being in a quiet room all by yourself and meditating and focusing on you internally and what you need to do that is important that is where we become and probably can discover the very best versions of ourselves mm-hmm. and jacote doesn't push this on her she asks him yeah yeah, right. I do appreciate like, that. Un- mm-hmm. Unlike, say, some of the other spiritual entities in Star Trek, 
of recent past, he does not cryptically appear before her and put a puzzle in front of her to solve. He navigates her through the entirety of the process and allows her to use it as a tool, mm-hmm. as a means of being able to find the worth that she needs to find within her day. That's what I like about how they're approaching it. And then you're right. We are not experts in native cultural, religious ceremony or meditation. But in terms of how they're producing it here for this show, mm-hmm. I think that it's just another part of Chakotay's development as a character, one that will inform us about who he is and where he came from. And does it or will it be specifically factual to any type of uh, tribe that he belonged to? Probably not. But that's not the point of this. The point of this is he has the ability to be able to connect with the captain at a very different level, one that she's now depending on as his first officer. That's what I get out of this relationship. That's what I get out of this conversation. And it's another example of the two of them growing together in order to depend on each other. Come back next week and uh, Janeway will be named the Emissary to the Spirit Animal Guides. Other things that giant space amoeba nebula creature does not contain. Pizza, beef jerky, cool ranch Doritos, plomic soup, Chief O'Brien's pants, self-sealing stem bolts, yamak sauce. So it's been a fantastic episode, and I think one of the most important things is John and I finally got on track with our versions of the cloud. I know that we started off... With completely different ideas, There's a little and bit again, of confusion. We agreed to disagree. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a, it's a trait. It's a trick that Ron Burgundy himself has taught me, and it's brought a lot of value into my yeah. life. But we are back on track with the cloud. We have had fantastic discussions about it, and now we are at the end of the episode. And traditionally, as we do, we take a look at does this episode hold up for us as an episode, and what are the morals and meanings and messages that we have learned, if any? So let's begin with you, John, since we are now on the same page. We can start talking about it in a way where it will bring us together, then drive us apart. I hope. <laughs> so, you, you know what? It, it's funny, like, in that whole conversation, there's a lot to talk about. We never talked about the nebula, you, you know? And, and I, that sort of... That that colors my take on this episode, which is to say that this is not a great episode. Um, the the enemy or the mystery and the twist about that mystery, right out of classic Star Trek, but also right out of any number of other sci-fi tales. And, and sometimes that is fine, but here it feels a bit uninspired. On that alone, my disinterest in the nebula creature, um, I I can't say that this episode would stand the test of time, even though the messages are worthy, and we'll get to those messages in a moment. This has shades of TOS, the immunity syndrome, which also I didn't love. And in that episode, the the plot literally is, you know, kill the giant amoeba. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it, it, at least this one goes a step beyond that to save the giant amoeba. In an attempt at a lighter tone, Voyager sometimes thinks that comedy is the answer. And I I did mention last week and just earlier how the doctor is our stand-in for the snarky comments that we would find out a place coming from someone else. And now it feels like the comedy relief has some competition coming from the wrong place. 
And I did give compliments to Ethan Phillips's performance last week, in which I thought there was real depth to Neelix. And now it, it, it feels this week like they didn't entirely know what to do with him. And that's frustrating, even though I, I still agree with you, Norman, he does have good moments. He does have good scenes. But overall, there, there's something off balance uh, about that for me. Now, the strength of this episode is what we have been seeing since the pilot. And that is laying the groundwork for who these characters are and how they relate. And, and it's a more interconnected cast than we've seen so far in this shorter period. So this becomes a forgettable episode, but saved by all the pillar filler, because that that is Michael Pillar doing his thing in this episode to take a weak action plot, but give it a lot of strong character moments. And like you said, Norm, you know, we get the, the line that launched a thousand memes, coffee in that nebula, I love it. Uh, also, by the way, there is a weird, odd thing in TV writing, pretty much applicable to any writing for that matter, which is, when do you stop? So Janeway, to me, sinking that eight ball without looking at it was great. Probably the perfect place to end. But we have that little tag of voiceover at the end, with Janeway referring to the bones of their ancestors and, quote, one powerful being who will embrace this good crew. And I don't hate that line. But it feels a little out of place, and I, I have to wonder what the decision process is like to include it. I, I just feel like it was sort of uh, a strange ending on top mm -hmm. of an ending, even though there is something of value looking into Janeway's mind there. In short, I feel like this is a very jumbled episode. There are great moments. There are great character moments. There are insights into their relationships. But then there's just a lot of weird stuff happening here, too. And it prevents the episode from really ascending to greatness. So, like I said, the last couple of episodes, honestly, there are things that I'll remember, but the plot is not one of them. <laughs> because the plot is such a throwaway, it could honestly be inserted anywhere. So, I can't in good conscience, give this one a pass and say that it holds up, that it stands the test of time. But we wouldn't have talked for as long as we did if there weren't things of value. Isn't in. that interesting? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, I reluctantly say that it doesn't right. hold up. Whereas there are others where I was just like, yeah, I'm ready to move on. I mean, looking <laughs> over uh, Voyager's first season run, you know, it is a short season. So I think one of the things mm -hmm. that yeah. we're going to run into uh, time and again, uh, certainly with this episode, is why I'm very ambivalent about this episode and whether or not I really like it or I like the moments in it because there are great moments in it. Yeah. This is a very tonally uneven episode. That is fair to say. But it does have a lot yeah. of solid concepts, uh, primarily the aspect of a Starfleet vessel that needed to repair the damage of that it did to an unknown and sentient life form. That's a traditional Star Trek motif and, and maybe something because it is so prevalent in Star Trek, it's become ubiquitous and you don't really pay attention to it, which means that you had an opportunity to do something in the B story. The problem is, is that there were a lot of B stories in this episode, <laughs> right? You had the Shea yeah. Sandrine element, yeah. you know, you had the Neelix drama, you had Chakotay and Janeway's spirit guide, you had Janeway wanting to connect to the crew. These are all fantastic ideas when they complement the main story. 
So if you take a look at and label any one of them, B plot one, B plot two, you literally have a sequence of events that goes A plot, B, A, B2, B3, A, B3, A, B2, B1, B1 being the spirit guide story, the way that Janeway ends it. So you have all of these fantastic elements, none of which is given enough Mm -hmm. time for anyone in the audience to say, wow, I really felt the impact of that decision in the story. Pick one. Pick any one of these elements to complement the A story, and it pretty would yeah. have it, it yeah. pretty much would have outstripped or become more important than the, again the ubiquitous alien uh, that needs to be saved because we did damage to its story. We've seen that before. Long story short, yeah. as the Emperor said in Amadeus, which is one of my favorite lines and favorite movies of all time, <laughs> this episode had too many notes. <laughs> the script just needed a firmer yeah. hand. Kind of like the way that Neelix was firmly handed his Talaxian butt to him by Janeway in her office. Just yeah. dismissed. You know, <laughs> look at the script and like, no, make these changes dismissed. That's what it needed. It just, ne- it just needed some clarity, some firmness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so about uh, morals, meanings, messages, was there a message here to I take I think home? so. And I think this is probably something that it's not one that I think a lot of people would land on. But I really think that Neelix is he represents a healthy skepticism to Starfleet's attitude towards the unknown in exploration. Rarely do we get to see this in Star Trek. Rarely do we get to see the voice that says, wait a second. Hold on a minute, right? <laughs> and at first, mm-hmm. the, in, in my first viewing of this, as, as we view it many times uh, for our research, yes, I bristled, probably much like many of you, uh, with Neelix's attitude towards, one, the captain taking them into the nebula in the first place, and two, his wanting to leave the ship like under threat, like, I'm going to leave because I don't like what you're doing. She's like, okay, duly noted, get out. Mm-hmm. But the yeah. more I think yeah. about it, the more I came to realize that Neelix is, he's kind of like speaking as the voice of the non-Starfleet character, like the non-heroic stereotype, the character who doesn't have to agree with the captain because her rank affords her such compliance, that privilege affords her, all of her officers to say, yes, of course, captain will do that. Well, they're probably terrified themselves, right? He's the character that mm-hmm. just wants to get through the day to get through the next day. And maybe somewhere along the line, he has a good meal. He has a good moment. He has a little bit of joy when he's not fearing for his life. He doesn't have the training to suppress that emotion. All he does is have the raw reaction that his race would have without being Starfleet. So, yeah, he's the reality of someone out there who's terrified of the unknown. And maybe he's (laughs) thinking, this is probably not a good idea. Joining up with this crew maybe not have been my smartest decision. But they have endless water, and they have a shiny ship. What you know? Why would I be afraid of that? But yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe this is what the show needed to show the audience: that there is a character that speaks the voice of reality. That space is cold and terrifying, and dangerous, and unknown, and unpredictable. That's not a bad thing. I mean, Bones said that yeah. in two thousand and nine. That you know, darkness and silence, right? Yep, yep. Maybe he's the, becoming the basis of a character that can be great, that will be great. I think that we've seen that with Ethan. He has the acting ability to create a character of great caliber. I equate Neelix to the Hobbits. There were the Hobbits at the beginning hmm. of the Fellowship of the Ring, who just wanted to hunker down and have everything just be the way it is. No war. 
no strife, no drama, mm-hmm. but maybe we're creating a character now and we're seeing a character develop into the hobbits that come back from the war and what happens to them mm. after they're affected by the exploration of the unknown. So that's what I get out of the Needles character, at least in this episode. Um, how about you, John? Well, look, I, I'm glad that you're framing Neelix the way that you are and, and uh, presenting a bit of a defense for him because the, this, I think the the episode, as you said, was so tonally out of whack that it kept playing with my sympathies or lack thereof for Neelix. So I like everything that you have said about what he says and what it means and how it represents this other point of view. It's hard for me to get past the sort of telegraphing in your face comedy to the audience and you know i i i don't want to dismiss his character because i think there is so much good stuff there as i said last week um and i do think that there are great moments for him here but again it's so off balance that it it hurts my perception of this episode Um, but what i do want to walk away from this episode with uh are all the very good moments and all those good character moments uh that i think absolutely serve this cast very well And, and the first thing uh, I think the the first bit of exploration that is really worthwhile in this is command style. Janeway has shaped up in such a short period of time. We've only gotten to know her for five episodes uh, to be this uh, combination of compassion and leadership. You can be a friend, you can be a confidant, and you can also make tough calls. Uh, or maybe a not-so-tough call like kicking Neelix out of your office. <laughs> That's That just comes naturally, you know. And maybe, in fact, being someone who knows your crew on a personal level just might even make you better at your command position. So I I think just seeing the captain grapple with that in an episode like this, very worthwhile, very valuable. And then the other big lesson here that I think is is so obvious, it is bonk bonk on the head, but it's worthwhile. Our mistakes are our responsibility. So exploring the nebula was done for good reason and with good intentions, but we're bound as humans to make a mistake from time to time. And then it becomes imperative that we help those in need. We do our best to right that wrong and we leave the place as we found it or better than we found it even if it takes us time, effort, and it depletes our energy <laughs> reserves, whatever those might be. The right thing is sometimes the more difficult thing, and there is not much more Star Trek than that. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, Eye of the Needle. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. In closing, the giant space amoeba nebula creature contains only giant space amoeba nebula creature guts, please leave them alone. Seriously, 
didn't we already have an Enterprise fly into a giant space amoeba? Do these people not take notes? End transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.